Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Paul Whitby. Paul is the Managing Director and Principal Ecologist at the Ecology Co-op, an independent ecological consultancy working within a range of subcontractors offering a range of ecological surveys to assist developers from large companies to individuals. Uh, Paul, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and good morning. Good morning, Paul. Pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us. Certainly is a lovely day for it. First uh, full day of summer. Um, And I suppose we should address the elephants in the room here before we sort of get into the bones of our discussion. And that is the fact that although we are slowly moving out of social restrictions, we are still somewhat within the grip of the COVID-19 global pandemic, aren't we? And we have been now for the best part of the last 14 months. So working at an ecology co-op as you do, to what extent has the pandemic actually affected your operations? Well, we're quite lucky to, to some degree. I mean, a lot of our, our work is um, is remote and, of course, outdoors, uh, being ecologists. So, uh, you know, social distancing and um, and carrying on um, through uh, lockdown restrictions has been possible. We were quite lucky and, um, you know, definitely released some clarification quite early on to say that, um, you know, the outdoor work that we were undertaking was low risk and, and that we uh, should be able to to sort of carry on those uh, those outdoor tasks. So um, having to sort of quickly get everyone sort of ready to work from home was 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 the main uh, challenge. But but closing the office itself wasn't um, too damaging. That's really positive. And um, when it came to sort of those kind of office closures, um, did you sort of find yourself having to deal with any sort of anxieties within your organisation? Because I can imagine just in those early weeks of the crisis, when we were sort of venturing into the unknown somewhat, that there was a little bit of sort of the mental health and well-being side of things that you had to consider. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think we've got a really close-knit team, very lucky, and, and, and you know, certainly you can tell that, that people kind of um, – miss that social interaction, um, you know, the, the sort of gripping together, the way that people sort of uh, manage to bounce ideas off each other at work and, and kind of rely on each other to some degree as well to, to sort of reassure themselves. That was, you know, taken away a little bit. Um, so particularly, I think, with, with some of the slightly more junior staff that, that you know, as, as they're working, need a little bit of, of reassurance with some of the things, some of the tasks they're undertaking, um, you know, that, that affected them. Um, but but also I think you saw a lot of people you know get people galvanising and and, um, and and showing some real resilience as well. I think that's very right. I think what we have seen during this time is people really bringing the best out in themselves, haven't they? They've gone above and beyond the port of call to sort of help keep industry running during this time and. It is testament to the efforts of so many people that business has managed to survive as long as it has during this period. I think that's very true and very important to remember. And hopefully that sort of 
spirit of community and being together all in the same boat i hope that's something that we certainly don't lose sight of and um something as well that's really sort of hit home as well as that during the pandemic at least from my experience paul is um a much heightened awareness of sustainability as well in our working practices and it's very clear that the government's ambitions for the economic recovery and indeed the hopes of the public are that the recovery from covid19 is going to be an ultimately green one and i suppose in your line of work that's something that you're really hoping to that is going to materialize over the course of the next few months and years absolutely i mean i, I think we've seen the public really embrace the outdoors um you know over the last um, year in a few months um you, you know suddenly the, that outdoor space has become really precious you people have um, you know started walking down footpaths they didn't used to and um, going to the local parks they, they never used to and um, you know, celebrating the outdoors and and that connection with with wildlife. I, th- I think we've we've seen that in in people. Uh, obviously, perhaps you know some some clients would be you know a bit reluctant to engage with us too much, and uh, they'd feel a little bit like um, you know worried about finding wildlife in in their garden or in their house because of course it's a constraint to sometimes the you know what they're planning. But but increasingly, we're seeing people. Um, really excited and uh, and thrilled to, to to find things on on their doorstep and um, there's been a, a mindset shift I think um, you know the baseline has moved a little bit so um, yeah that's been really encouraging and I, I, you know I, I certainly hope the fact that the you know the public um, you wants to see you know Britain staying green and and, and getting greener um, you know means that the government will will fulfil that uh, those promises. And it seems as if sort of the great outdoors is still going to have a role to play in our day-to-day lives going forward, doesn't it? And the reason why I say that is because there's a great deal of talk within a lot of professions about working from home, flexible working, whatever you want to call it, becoming sort of the status quo going forward. So there may be sort of three days a week working from home, only two weeks, two days a week working uh, from an office space. Um, And when you're working from home, I suppose it's easy then to just sort of go and enjoy what's out there on your doorstep, go and enjoy your walk and sort of have that time away from your desk. And I think that sort of benefit to the work-life balance is incredibly important. Nature plays a really important and vital role in that. And people have really begun to appreciate that an awful lot more. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we've been, you know, as I said at the start, we've been very lucky in in that we we were able to sort of stay open and our our, our day-to-day work involves you know, site visits where we're, we're going out, we're looking for, you know, bats, great goose, reptiles, etc. Um, so in some ways, our, 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 you know, work lives change quite a bit, um, you know, for the, the sort of death-based element of our jobs. It, mm-hmm. um, it was able to stay pretty much the same. Uh, you know, our surveys and our, um, you know, what we really enjoy, we're just getting out and getting stuck into to looking for, for animals and plants and, um, and studying habitats. And just sort of reflecting on the last sort of 14 months by and large, um, would you say that you've come away from this experience maybe having learnt something for the sort of few struggles you've undergone at this time? Yeah, um, I think I think we have. I mean, we, we, we've all learned uh, to adapt um, a fair bit more. Um, I mean, we're, we're just starting to get one or two more people um, in in our new office. We've, we've just moved into a really big space, so 
Um, you know, we can socially distance quite easy here, and, and there are a few tasks where you know people, the guys, do have to come in um, to work on on certain computers. Um, but but yeah, you know, work, you know, holding our monthly meetings on Teams and um, and and coordinating with clients more um, on Teams has, has been uh, really useful. I should, should mention others may they feel about marketing specific specific products on this podcast. Um, but um, but yes, we, we've and the way that we we manage um, you know our time and, and each other's time um, has obviously had to adapt a lot. You know, normally you just have a chat and, mm. and, and sort of work those things out face to face. But of course, it's all done much more you know remotely now. And with regard to that sort of remote working side of things, when you're having to sort of lead a group of people from afar and do it all through mechanisms such as Zoom and Teams. Do you find that sort of warrants a change in sort of leadership style and approach? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've always tried to have a fairly relaxed kind of self-management um, approach, um, you know, and, and trust people to, to manage their own time to a large degree. So um, I, I don't think that changed um, too much. You know, we're not kind of a, a BDI company looking at um uh, you know how people are, are working too. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, I don't think that element of it really changed too much in it, and I guess that's why we were kind of well prepared to some mm. degree when it came to to, um, to you know to the change with the, the lockdown and the pandemic. Now I see where you're coming from, and I think what is quite clear is that a lot of companies have sort of caught up now with that mentality, whereas some may have been a little bit more hot on productivity and maybe weren't sure whether flexible working practices would really bode well for how productive their workers are. I guess what the pandemic has done is it's sort of forced them into that position and it's shown them that sort of there is trust there and that people can go home, can enjoy that work-life balance and can be more productive for it because there is that extra element of time efficiency, I suppose, where you're not having to commute into work for maybe a couple of hours a day. That time can be better spent doing more productive things, working from home. And also that sort of lack of needing to travel into places or go sort of several uh, hundred miles to attend a meeting or catch a flight to go to an international convention perhaps doing all of that remotely again has a knock-on effect um for the environment as well yeah uh yeah absolutely i mean i'm i, I think that um you know we've all learned that we, we don't have to travel um as much you know I, I used to regularly be called to uh to meetings with clients at offices you know um, all across the, the southeast and, and and elsewhere sometimes and uh yeah, I mean, we've all realised that actually it is perfectly good to, to you know, hold sort of virtual meetings. You know, they, they, they function just as well. Don't take, they take as much time out of your day. Uh, they ultimately cost the client less because, of course, you know, there's not the, the sort of travel time and mileage to be charged. So, um, yeah, and it's better for the environment, which is you know, the biggest one of all, really, isn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've never been one to sort of fly anywhere for, for client meetings and anything like that, but... Um, but certainly, you know, you look back and, and the business class flights that, you know, constantly people flying wrong for just literally what was a two or three hour meeting. What was the point in that? You know, it, it was so unnecessary. It was just one of those. I think it was just a, a work perk in a way, wasn't it? That, mm. But um, but albeit an unnecessary one that quite often I don't think people really, really wanted to do once they'd done one or two. You know, the, the novelty was probably probably gone. Yeah, exactly. It's 
going to be changing time certainly and it's been a real wake-up call this pandemic and hopefully we can sort of heed those sort of lessons in terms of efficiency in terms of our working practices and use that to move forward for the better and just thinking about what sort of future we can expect Paul before we wrap things up because I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time Um, as we start to move out of social restrictions hopefully for good over the course of the next three to four weeks um, what are you expecting on the horizon at the ecology co-op and indeed by this time next year where do you sort of see yourselves i'd say that um the effect of the pandemic surprised me and i think i think when we first went into lockdown i thought well okay we've got a pot of money here we'll just make it last as long as we can you know we were kind of expecting work to to just completely dry up and and it it didn't at all we actually ended up so much busier than we ever expected and, and and last year was actually the most profitable year we had i think partly because we worked around the restrictions and, and tried to, to stay open as much as possible and and this year there's, there's been a continual bounce so i think we we will continue to stay um very busy um we're continuing to to try and be very flexible with our staff we've changed our contracts so that um in the future, once you know lockdown is all the restrictions have finally ended, the, the guys will only have to come in uh, two days a week at most, which we kind of wanted to encourage just to maintain sort of sort of team cohesion. But we're very happy for them to, to work from home now, uh, you know, um, flexibly three days a week if they want to. Um, so I, I think that we learned a lot from it, and I, th- I think we'll we'll grow as a as a company as a result that the resilience that we've we've taken on will um, will benefit us in the future yes yeah, certainly it's going to be an interesting time just to see sort of how the changes we implement um, and have implemented over the pandemic are going to benefit and hopefully we do sort of stay true to that and we don't sort of revert to the old way as we start to adjust to something akin to normal life and I think Paul as well as we start to get an idea of exactly what form the economic recovery is taking especially I'd love to actually welcome you back on the show and just sort of review what's going on and see how things at the Ecology Co-op are getting on and how your work's coming along because I have to say it's been a real eye-opener for me welcoming you onto the show today and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Paul. And uh, most importantly as well, since we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, uh, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on. Thank you very much. You too. And that also goes for all of our listeners tuning into the programme today. Do please continue to take care of yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. Better days are coming and we are almost there, I'm sure. Um, It was a pleasure, of course, to welcome Paul Whitby, Managing Director and Principal Ecologist from the Ecology Co-op onto the programme today. And coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by our incumbent chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 or so months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. That is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, the the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage. 
have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.